kiddos. You can line up behind. Today is B. Bowling's sixth birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, B. It is Chris. Oh, that's right. It's Chris's birthday. Sorry, Chris. B overshadowed you. <laughs> All right. Well, if my estimates are right, one out of two or more of your neighbors, friends, and co-workers in St. Tammany Parish, 50% of the people you know in town do not know and trust Jesus. And more than that, they do not have frequent opportunities to see the gospel lived out in a person's life. They do not have repeated opportunities to hear the gospel proclaimed to them clearly. And they do not have repeated opportunities wherein a person is asking them, do you want to believe in Jesus? Now, we have those opportunities. We hear it all the time here at FPC, hopefully in your homes, in your friendships with other Christians. Yet half of our population in St. Tammany doesn't have that opportunity. And so for the last five weeks, we've been talking about ways that you can live out the gospel in your life. That people could see something in you or be impacted by your life in a way that something looks different. And we call that promoting the gospel with your life. If you're not promoting the gospel with your life, it doesn't matter what you say. What you say is going to fall on deaf ears if you do not demonstrate what it looks like to live a transformed life. But now for the final three weeks in our sermon series... We're going to shift from talking about promoting the gospel with our way of life to proclaiming the gospel with our mouths. How each and every one of us is called by God to tell somebody about Jesus. Why does this task of telling other people about Jesus, why does it cause us such trepidation, such nervousness? Well, we can be nervous about damaging the relationship, you know? People see matters of faith as very personal, and sometimes we're afraid of what will happen to that relationship if we bring it up. Perhaps even simpler than that, we look at ourselves and think, well, I just don't know enough to share the gospel with another person. I'm not ready for that. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not the person for the job, right? Surely there's somebody else that will share the gospel with them. But here's the problem. If every one of us is thinking, I can't do it, I'm not the person for the job, then it will never happen. It is my personal belief that this is one major reason that the United States of America is increasingly post-Christian. Even in the South, the landscape is littered with churches. And frankly, a lot of them churches that preach the gospel very clearly. Why is it that we are gathering and worshiping the crucified and resurrected Lord, and yet the statistics are so bad? I think a part of it is every one of us, myself included, are reticent to tell another person about Jesus. We're afraid to open our mouths. Very few Christians are walking out of church on Sunday morning Not only with a willingness to share the gospel, but a desire to do it. To tell their family, friends, and co-workers, and neighbors about Jesus. And it leaves us with this question. A few weeks ago, 
we made an Oikos map, which was a, a chart. This was mine. It's not my complete one. It's one I did here on Sunday morning, where you're asking the question, who is close to me but far from God? And then who do they know that's close to them but far from God? Each of you, I hope, if you were here, you did that. If not, I encourage you to go back. The sermon title is, Who Am I Responsible to Reach? I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon and do this for yourself. These are the people you can be praying for. These are the people whom we're supposed to be doing those gospel-promoting tasks among, right? Here's the question. Who's going to tell these people about Jesus? I'm the person that's connected to them all. When you look at the people on your list... You are the one connected to them all. You're the one, if you're doing those five gospel-promoting tasks, you're the one who's been praying for them. You're the one who's been opening your time and your home to them. You're the one who's been living out your faith publicly in their presence. You perhaps have been financially generous to their needs. You're the one whom they've seen the impact of the gospel on your, your home, your friendships, and all your relationships. Maybe they even know something of your relationship with the body of Christ. They have seen the gospel in you. You've been promoting it with your way of life. So it only makes sense you'd be the person to tell them about Jesus. But here's the question we're going to try to grapple with a bit this morning. How can you get comfortable with this idea of telling the people on your Oikos map about Jesus? How can you get comfortable? Well, first, training helps. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing some training in this space. That won't necessarily suffice. We probably need to do a Sunday school class later this year, spend 10 weeks on it, helping equip you to talk to another person about Jesus. So training can make you a little more comfortable. Uh, Additionally, uh, repetition, practice, and experience help even more. You know, training gives you a good starting point, but until you're out there having conversations with real people about their faith, that's when you really learn what you're doing and you get more comfortable. But there will always be some level of discomfort (laughs) with talking about matters of faith with others. So it's totally possible. Maybe there's one or two people in here whom God has called and equipped as an evangelist. And God has given you just absolute fearlessness. You can talk to any and every person, whether they're a stranger or whether you know them, and you've got no problem talking to them about Jesus. But that's not most of us. And y'all know me. I'm talking about Jesus all the time. I talk to Jesus uh, about Jesus to you guys. Uh, I, I, I talk about Jesus to my wife and my kids and my Christian friends. You probably think I'm the most fearless evangelist in town, and that is absolutely not the case. When I'm talking to unbelieving friends that I've been cultivating that relationship with, and when I suddenly, it always sneaks up on me. It's like, oh, wait, we're talking about the faith right now. I get this pit in my stomach, and I get anxious about it. You remember back in in October or September, I preached an evangelistic sermon in Madisonville. I wore my D&D shirt. If you were there, it was quite a thing. I was a nervous wreck before that. I'm I'm much more used to talking to Christians about Jesus than I am talking to unbelieving folks. It's, I get it. I have that discomfort too. And training, I've got a degree in this, right? (laughs) I've got training and boy, I've got experience. And with strangers, actually, I find it easier than with people where I've cultivated that relationship. So I realize there's discomfort here. I don't want to 
create some illusion that there's ever going to be a point where you're not a little bit uncomfortable. But here's what I want to get to. Maybe being comfortable telling somebody about Jesus is the wrong target to aim at. If the skill we're wanting to achieve is comfort, you want to feel comfortable talking to people on your Oikos map before you do it, then you'll never do it. And to be quite frank, as a pastor of FPC and a pastor here in St. Tammany, one of our greatest idols in St. Tammany is comfort. So if comfort's ever the thing we're aiming for, I'm going to have to be a little bit skeptical there. So I think we need to expect and just accept it's going to get a little weird sometimes. It's going to be a little uncomfortable sometimes. People might even say, no, I don't believe that, and I don't want you to talk about it anymore. Okay, so that, that just is what it is. So here's another follow-up. What other emotion could be so strong? What other affection could be so compelling? What other motive could be so fiery that it overrides my fear of discomfort? What drive or emotion or motive could be stronger than our nervousness? Love for neighbor helps a concern not only for their eternal state, but for their joy and purpose and meaning in this life. That, that helps a lot. And to flash back to the first sermon in this series, if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go back to it. Here's the top one. A love for God and a passion for his glory. That is an even more central and fundamental motive to urge us along. If you do not have an overwhelming desire for the good name of Jesus to spread across this earth, then you're never going to do this. That's the primary motive. And I've already preached on that, so I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. Today, I'm going to hit on another notion that should excite us to tell others about Jesus, even when we're apprehensive or a little bit nervous. And it's this. We just sang about it. If you realize who you are, the prospect of proclaiming the gospel would thrill you. If you knew who you are. Now we finally get to today's, today's text. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter, among other things, is painting a picture of you. He describes in this text your identity, who you are, and you may not even know who you are. If you think back to last year's sermon series on the image of God, you'll know already that we cannot know ourselves without first knowing God. As Calvin said, true knowledge of self is found through knowing God first. And that's how Peter begins. He describes who God is. So look at verse 4 in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's okay, you can use your phone Bible or your print copy. I love the smell of pages. I'm always more of a fan of the analog Bible, but read along as I, as I read. You've got to keep the preacher honest. It doesn't stick stuff in there. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if you want to know who you are, 
You have to know who God is. And even more poignantly, if you want to know who you are as an image bearer of God, then you need to know who Jesus is, which Colossians 1.15 says that he is the perfect image of God. And in this text, Peter describes who Jesus is with some, actually with some quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he does that and then tells us something about ourselves. So who's Jesus? According to Peter in Isaiah, where Peter describes Jesus in two ways in this text. First, Jesus came to be the cornerstone upon which fallen Israel would be rebuilt. And second, while some will reject Jesus and be judged, others will believe and have nothing to fear. Now, you may not see how that has anything to do with telling other people about Jesus, and that's okay. Just just hang with me here. Through knowing Jesus... We know ourselves. So let's unpack these two statements about Jesus. First, he's the cornerstone on which Israel would be rebuilt. If you're not familiar with the story of the Old Testament, it's the first half of the Bible. The story of the Old Testament is the story of Israel, God's chosen people. God saved them from slavery in Egypt. That's the whole Moses story, if you'll recall. And why did he do that? So that he could be their God and so that they would be his people. They could live in relationship with one another, them serving him and loving them and him providing for them. And then he gave them his law. He told them how to live in his way. He gave them a wonderful place to live. He gave them everything they could need. What does that remind us of? The beginning of the story. When God made the first man and woman. He gave them a place to live. He gave them his law. He gave them everything they needed so that they could be his people and he could be their God and they could live in relationship with one another. And, well, how did Israel respond to all of God's gracious providing and saving work? They responded like humans. They responded the way our first parents did and the way all of us do. They responded to his provision with unbelief, with selfishness, with unintentional and intentional rejection of God. Israel, despite all of God's goodness to them, Israel had a problem in their hearts. A sin problem that they couldn't fix. A sin problem that knowing God's law couldn't fix. And that's a problem not just for Israel, folks. It's a problem for me. And it's a problem for every human being. You see, what was Israel supposed to be? Israel was supposed to be a reboot of humanity. That's why it sounds so much like Adam's story. Israel was supposed to be God's people who would bring his rule and reign to the earth. They, God's people, were supposed to undo injustice and division and immorality and violence. All that plagues the earth, they were supposed to fix all that. But they didn't. They, like every people group, Like every human family, like every individual, they didn't trust the Lord. As a result, they failed to live according to his standard. Enter Jesus. Jesus born into the lineage of Israel's kings. And he came to fulfill the purpose of Israel. He came to do what they could not do. Well, who's Jesus? Who cares? How's he going to do that? He's God. In human flesh, he enters the people of Israel to fulfill their task for them and then to restart the mission of the people of God. He calls it the kingdom. Well, how's he going to do that if we've got this inoperable heart problem? He came to handle that too. 
He came to fix the fatal flaw of Israel and every society which is sinful hearts. He came to do what no ordinary human and what no law can. He came to transform humanity from the inside out as we trust in him and receive his Holy Spirit. Jesus was the cornerstone of a new thing. But what is his identity as this cornerstone? How does that express who you are? As those who believe in him. Remember my contention. That if you realize who you are. You'd be thrilled to tell other people about Jesus. Well who are we then? Let's look again at verses 4 through 6. As you come to him. A living stone. Rejected by men. But in the sight of God chosen and precious. If you look. Jump down to verse 6. You see some of that cornerstone language used there. I'm not digging into these verses for time's sake. The living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God chosen and precious. Who are you? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and read verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, in verse 4, Peter says that Jesus is a living stone. But what does he say then at the beginning of verse 5? Look at it. He says, you yourselves like living stones. Jesus is a living stone. We are like living stones. What's he talking about? He says, we are not living stones, but we are like living stones. That means we are not Jesus, but we're made to be like him. What was Israel's problem? Why did they fail in God's world restoration project? They weren't like Jesus. What's people's problem today? They're still not like Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus, God intends to make believers in Christ like Jesus. We'll never be exactly like Jesus in this life or in the next one. But we can, we can be like him. And the whole Christian life is intended for us to daily become more and more like Jesus. And from that basis, Peter then extends his metaphor. So continue in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So... As we live lives that are continually being shaped more and more into the image of Jesus, as we are built on the foundation of that, we become a part of something bigger. So we, with lives shaped like Jesus, are becoming the world-restoring people that Israel failed to be. When you use this language of a spiritual house, what's a spiritual house? Anybody want to guess? Temple. He talks about a priesthood. He talks about sacrifices. This is all Israel talk. He's talking about us becoming a new Israel. So as we live more and more like Jesus, as our lives are shaped like him, the expectation is that we, the global, regional, local church, that we would be the people that Israel failed to be. What's the difference between Israel and us? Moses believed the good news. He didn't know the whole story, right? Abraham certainly believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. They believed just like we do. What's the difference? Pentecost is a huge part of the difference. At one time, the Holy Spirit resided in the temple. 
people wanted to hear from God, they go to the temple or they go to the few folks that had the Holy Spirit in them. But in Pentecost, the Spirit was democratized among all of God's people. So that if you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. So we are in an advantageous place compared to Israel because you have the Holy Spirit in you who is committed to your growth, to your sanctification, and he is there to discipline and guide and direct you toward the ends that is the glory of Jesus shining in your life. So what this means is, through Christ, we are not only forgiven and our eternity is taken care of, but we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the world changers that he has called us to be, to take this world that is broken and to see through our living out and speaking out the grace of Christ, to see our world put back together again. And listen again as to how Peter describes that activity in verses 5, 9, and 10. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, more Israel talk, right? A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if Jesus is this living stone, the cornerstone of this spiritual house, and we're these living, we're like living stones, we're these bricks kind of shaped like him, we're being built up into something, who are you? You are not only a member of God's chosen and loved people, you're not only called to be holy as Jesus is holy, but you are also a priest of God. He says it twice in our text. Well, you might think, I'm not a priest. We're Presbyterians. We don't have priests. We're also complementarians around here. We we're strong on male headship in the home and the church. And so you may think, I'm not a priest, I'm a woman. That, that's, that's man's work. I'm a child. I'm not a priest. I, I'm a new Christian. I, I'm, surely I'm not at that level yet. I've got to take a class or something uh, before I can be called a priest. Peter gives none of those qualifications. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then God has picked you out. He has called you and equipped you to be a priest. What does that mean? It means that the overriding purpose of your life should now be worship. What does a priest do? He works in the temple to glorify God, to make much of the name of God, and then to call not only those who believe in, in God, but the whole earth to worship the one true God. All this talk in this chapter, all this spiritual house, priesthood, sacrifices, it's all talking about worship. And then in verse 9, he really lands a plain for us when he says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a priest. That's part of your new identity in Christ. That's why you're on the planet. If you're scratching your head, 
especially you younger ones among us, or you who have recently retired, you're scratching your head and thinking, why am, why am I still here? Or, why has God got me here in the first place? I'll tell you why. God has you on earth to proclaim his bright and marvelous excellencies in the darkness of the world. It's not an optional activity. It's not for the preachers and the evangelists. It's for the priests. And you're a priest because of the work of Christ. But what's the goal of proclamation? So is is your calling, is your purpose to proclaim the gospel so that people can be saved, so that the world can be restored? Like, this is my job. I need to know what metrics there are to, to say, I did it. I succeeded this week. I did what he wanted me to do. No. Even the most fumbling proclamation of the glory of God is not only an end unto itself, but it is itself the whole purpose of existence. The catechism tells us, why did God make you in all things? Anybody remember? Ah, that's the preacher's kid, of course. That's right. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Every creature, great and small, even the rocks and the blades of grass, the sun, the moon, the stars, the volcanoes, the... Everything exists for the glory of God. That is the purpose of existence. And so you, as a priest, have been restored to our purpose. Why did he put Adam and his wife in the garden but to know God and to declare his glory? It's not like this new responsibility has gotten tacked onto us. He's restoring to us the purpose of existing. I'm not saying you're called to be an evangelist. That's a certain subset that goes and reaches all kinds of strangers in every nook and cranny of St. Tammany to tell them about Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't have to have the best delivery or the most ornate words or even to be in the presence of another human being. But if you utter the words with your mouth, God is good and Jesus is Lord. By simply saying that sentence, you fulfilled Not only your reason for existing, but the purpose of the whole earth. The proclamation of the glory of God in Christ fulfills the purpose of existence. It shines the glory of God into a dark world. Adam and Eve were made for it, and they failed to glorify God. So when we declare the beauty and goodness of God in any situation, we are living out and experiencing the whole reason that humanity exists. But when we own that, And we step into that role. When we embody our priestly purpose, not only in private, but everywhere and in everything. When all of our life becomes about worship. When everything we do gets wrapped up in our priestly calling so that whether we're at home or at work or at play or wherever we are and whatever we're doing, when it becomes a sacrifice to honor God and make much of him... That starts tearing up the world in a good way because it shines the light of God's character and his works everywhere we go. And it invades this land with the glory of Christ, which, again, is the purpose of creation. But when that happens and the light of Christ is shining in your home and in your workplace and everywhere you live, learn, work and play. That also has an impact on the people around you. 
It's collateral damage of the, the main goal, the declaration of the glory of God and making much of him and filling the earth with his glory. So as we aim to fill our lives with demonstrations, that's a promotion stuff, and proclamations of the glory of God, we steer history toward its conclusion. Where's it headed? Glory, judgment, and restoration. That's where the earth is headed. This is who you are. This is why you exist. Old or young, male or female, mature or immature, educated or not, skilled or not, you exist, Christian, to usher in the end of the ages. To play a part in the undoing of what Adam and Eve did. To be what Israel failed to be. Do you want to see the story of history? Do you want to see it come to its beautiful conclusion with sin done away and with all things made right? We move Sunday school, so I can pause here for a minute. I don't have anything butting up against me. We're going to be here till 2 o'clock. You hear a narrative every day that says the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And we take it to heart. We hear it declared to us, this message declared to us all the time. From every corner. We have a different message. Christ has won. Christ has risen. Christ is ruling and reigning and his enemies are being brought under his feet. And one day soon he will come and restore this earth to what it should have been. Glory, judgment, and restoration are coming. Do you want to see it come to bear? Do you want to see the glory of God fill the earth? Then fill the earth with his glory. If you long for that day, bring it to pass now. But how do we do that? Well, we do it with our life. We live lives that look like Jesus. We promote the gospel. Peter tells us that. We're to be like Jesus. But there's a second part to proclaiming his glory, telling other people who God is and what he's done, what he's like. We're priests after all. There's a lot of things to do, but there's also some things to say. Verse 9, I'll read it again. Take it to heart. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I believe if you realize who you are, that you are a priest of God called to this purpose, given this huge cosmic restorative calling, if you realize who you are, the notion of proclaiming the gospel would actually thrill you. By simply uttering with your mouth the simplest statement of God's glory in Christ, we fulfill our reason for existing and we hasten history toward its glorious end. You want to be a part of that? I know I do. Well, how? How does each of us fulfill this proclaiming work, this speaking task? Well, as I've kind of said throughout the series, each of us does it in different ways. What Peter is describing here is not evangelism. He's describing worship, simply proclaiming the excellencies of God in any and every setting. So how do we accomplish this priestly task together? First, we do it by worshiping together. Community worship, what we're doing today, is not about you. And it's not primarily for you. The goal of worship is not to get some encouragement for your week. It's not to get some kind of good Jesus buzz going before I go back to work on Monday. No. The goal of this is to fill this place, to fill your life, and to fill the earth with the glories of God. We proclaim the excellencies of God simply because he deserves it. 
That's why we're doing this. But when you worship here with God's people, you're doing a priestly work. You've all been priests this morning. If you've sung a song, if you've read the scriptures aloud, if you've prayed, you've been doing a priestly work serving not only God, but serving the others who are here. This has an impact on each other. And this brings up a a very practical implication. Bringing your children and your unbelieving friends to church is still a viable and powerful means of reaching them for Christ. So maybe you're nervous to talk to the people on your Oikos map about the gospel. You don't know what you would say. You don't feel like you're equipped yet. Okay, bring them to church. And when they hear you, the person that they know, singing these songs and saying these words and praying these prayers, they're going to hear you proclaiming the excellencies of God. It's almost too easy. Worship with God's people is a key way to accomplish this priestly work and encourages us to take advantage of this simple activity. Bring your kids and your unbelieving friends and invite them to worship with us. For what it's worth, on April 2nd, we have an Easter egg hunt after church that is intentionally planned so you can invite your friends and family with you. The next Sunday is Easter Sunday when even the most pagan person is like, yeah, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to church on Easter. Why not? Here's the challenge. Bring everybody you know. We're not going to run out of space. If we run out of space, I will take some kind of weird pastoral unilateral uh, call. We'll smash out the windows. We'll put some chairs out there, and the church members can sit out there and get sunburned, and everybody else will be comfortable in here. So challenge. Let's see if you can pull it off. I'd love to break a window on a Sunday morning. It'd be fun, right? Bring everybody you know. That's one way. We worship together. That's one way we accomplish this priestly speaking task. Here's another one. Respond to others' questions about matters of faith. And third, converse the faith. Both of these, I'm not talking about a high-pressure sales pitch. I'm talking about just sharing with another person what you know of God in a normal, ordinary conversation. Somebody raises a question about the faith, generally, or about your faith, specifically. And you just tell them the truth. You tell them your story of faith, or you tell them the answer to their question. Or you see an opportunity to talk casually about matters of faith as conversing the faith, and you do it. Neither of these is like targeting a person, having some evangelistic scheme. This person, I'm going to get them. No, it's just being open with your faith when opportunities arise. One last category is a bit more intentional, though. And that's when we follow the Spirit's lead and invite someone to believe in Jesus. How have we defined lostness throughout this series? It's when a person not only doesn't believe in Jesus, but it's when they don't have repeated opportunities to see the gospel hear the gospel, and to respond to the gospel. We've been talking about people seeing the way of the gospel in your life. We've been, we're going to be in these three weeks talking about you telling people about the gospel. But some of us, if not all of us, need to step into this last harder place, which is where we invite someone to respond to the gospel. And we give them the opportunity to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. That's a frightening sort of conversation, isn't it? That's what we're going to pick up next week. We're going to talk through uh, responding to people's questions, conversing the faith, and inviting someone to believe in Jesus, kind of giving you some training and some equipping, beginning that conversation together. So that's where we will pick up. But if you realize who you are, that's where we want to start with this very basic idea that you're a priest of God. If you realize what God made you for, then I think this notion of telling somebody about Jesus would actually excite you. 
it would thrill you, and that that would override the nervousness that you may feel. Why? Why would it override it? Do you see the brokenness of history and the present? Do you see the suffering and hopelessness and darkness of the world? You can play a part in bringing that to its glorious conclusion. And what is the means of that? Where is the world headed? One day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God, which means that our job now is living out and speaking out the glory of God on earth. So your calling to spread the glory of God is more essential than any other job you have. In fact, every other calling and job you have is meant to be an expression of the glory of God. So living and proclaiming the glory of God is not an optional activity for some, Christ, for some Christians, but not others. No, we are the new Israel, the new humanity who is ushering in the world's completion. We must catch the thrill of that vision and allow it to carry us into obedience to the call. And it's so simple to do, simply by worshiping together, responding to questions that people might bring up, casually talking about the Lord, and occasionally inviting someone else to believe in Jesus. In doing these things and in the ways we promote the gospel, we fulfill our priestly task and usher in the completion of all things. Let's pray. May it be so, Lord. We ask you to do this work today and this week through us. Shine your glory through our way of life and through our words. This I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.